Hey, my name is Amanda. I want to thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message inspires you, builds your faith, and helps you find your next step toward Jesus. Enjoy the message. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? In, a, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to the, where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. She got pregnant. She was scared. How could she face her parents? What would they say? Can't hide something like that forever. Her parents asked who the father was. They assumed her boyfriend, but baby wasn't his. He loved her so much, he offered to help raise the child with her. They married and found a small place. They had very little money and no insurance. One evening, her water broke. There wasn't time to get help. He delivered the child and lay him in a manger. Bet you didn't see that coming, did you? Good morning. Aren't you glad that Jesus gets us? If you've been a teen mom, you are a teen mom, Jesus gets you. His mother was a teenage mother. If you have lived with a certain level of shame in your life, our rumors have followed you, Jesus gets you. We know from the Gospels that um, this unusual birth of Jesus was discussed and... Uh, Stories told, and rumors followed him the rest of his life in a certain sort of uh, uh, degrading way. 
So Jesus gets you. Wherever you're at or whatever it is you've gone through, Jesus gets you. It says that Jesus was tempted in all ways like us. Yet he didn't sin. So he gets you. And he's also giving us some rain right now. I prayed, Lord, send us rain. I didn't know it was going to come in my sermon, but here we go. <laughs> um, dealing with this subject is hard. Can we just say that right up front? It's hard. It's hard for a number of folks. It's hard for some women in our midst. Because every time that I've brought up the subject, I'm usually met by a woman afterwards who's had an abortion. It's hard. It's hard for some families who have dealt with this by just not dealing with it, and they kind of swept it under the rug, and it's a family secret. And the chances are very high that there are several of those in our midst today. It's also hard for folks who may consider themselves pro-life, but they're kind of jaded and cynical about the whole subject because they feel it's been captured by partisan politics and they just, you know, don't deal with it or get bothered when the subject comes up. And so there are a lot of people listening today and some who will really disagree with what I have to say. And I would just pray for all of that, God's grace, God's grace upon us as, um, as we deal with this. So why, Ron, would you talk about this now? Well, we saw coming, what happened on Friday with the Supreme Court decision, and I knew that if it came out the way that we kind of suspected it would, that this would become uh, maybe the, the biggest thing of not only the summer, but the year and for a season, for a big season, one of the historic things in our nation's history, and it is going to be handled all kinds of ways, and in some ways is not going to be handled well. And so how are we in the church going to navigate this, and how is our witness going to fare following this? Um, my hope is that we will respond as disciples of Jesus, that we will address this and think about this in terms of discipleship and through a biblical lens, and that we'll have that focus and that grounding not through a political lens, not even through an issue kind of lens, not through the sound bites that uh, capture the day that are quoted here or there or spouted by news organizations. Um, and if you're relatively new to LaCroix, don't you know we're not an issue-driven church. I, last time I preached a full message on abortion was 2001. We did a series called Too, not, Too Hot Not to Handle and dealt with several uh, controversial issues. And Abortion was one of them. And at the time, I said, LaCroix is not an issue-driven church, never has been, and I hope it never will be. So I don't know that I've ever been quoted before, but I just quoted myself. I just want you to know from my 2001 message. Um, it's not about issues. It's about discipleship. And I want us to see this and every opportunity to address Social issues that are really hard, really difficult, contentious, divisive, and all of that through a lens that I think Christians have been taught to view it. Um, because there was a time when the world was much darker 
and the light of Jesus shined so brightly through the people of God that it changed the world. And I want us to reflect on what happened in the early days of our movement in the early church that, that literally changed the thinking of the, of the whole Roman Empire and the whole world. What was it? What was it that was so um, compelling about the early Christian testimony and preaching and witness that changed how people look at life? Well, first you have to understand that uh, the Roman Empire, um, that, the, that the, the attitude towards the unborn and the newly born was very, very harsh indeed. Just take, for instance, what a couple of the leading philosophers of the day had to say. Cicero, uh, who was a refined and educated philosopher, lived right before the time of Jesus, said, deformed infants shall be killed. And a deformity could be an unwanted child, a sickly child, uh, any, a wrong sex child, it could be anything. The Stoic philosopher Seneca, who, uh, whose life overlapped Jesus, lived in the first century, he said, mad dogs we knock on the head, unnatural progeny we destroy, we drown even children at birth who are weakly and abnormal. And to give you an idea of just how the common person saw it, those were the leader, thought leaders, um, a, a letter was discovered. Um, no, no, who wrote it? It was, by, it was written by a husband uh, to his wife when he was out of town. And uh, it goes like this, I'm it's a longer letter, here's excerpts, it says, I'm still in Alexandria, she lived in Rome. I beg and plead with you to take care of our little child and as soon as we receive wages, I'll send them to you. In the meantime, if you give birth, if it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, expose it. It was very common in the first century to practice exposure. And that was a child born to somebody, not wanted for whatever reason, and often it was uh, that it was a, a girl, was taken to the local garbage dump and just simply left, or placed on top of a dung hill. There were certain places where that was commonly done. Exposure was widely practiced, as was abortion. And yet, three centuries, it's three centuries later, the Roman Empire banned exposure and banned abortion. What was the difference? What changed it all? Um, Andy Stanley wrote a fabulous book called Irresistible. And he said here, once upon a time, members of a Jewish cult called The Way, against all odds, captured the attention and ultimately the dedication of the pagan world, both inside and outside the Roman Empire. They were men and women credited with turning the world upside down. What did first century Christians know that we don't know? What made their faith so compelling, so resilient, and in the end, irresistible? What was it? What was it that allowed the early church to bring light in such a dark situation? Well, I can tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't political power. They had none of that. It was an empire. It wasn't influence. It wasn't that they had a lot more money or influence than anybody else. They actually didn't have that. Paul describes that many of the early Christians were people simply with, without influence. Um, also, I could say that it wasn't necessarily their teaching or their rhetoric. Although the early church, grounded in the scriptures, 
had um, a very strong ethic of, of life. Um, we talk today about rights, and it is an American obsession, is it not? We like our rights. Um, but I would suggest that um, rights isn't a playground that we play on, nor is it a swimming pool we swim in. Um, usually, when the New Testament writers speak about rights, they talk about laying them down and laying them aside and not demanding our, our rights. I would say that that even speaks to the um, term that we often hear called right to life. And while it's, it's a good enough phrase, it's still um, contrary to this whole concept of rights. Now, make no mistake about it, um, there is a strong ethic of life in the scriptures. It begins in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1 with the creation story. It says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created us in his image. And human beings have and are image bearers, which makes every human being precious in the sight of God from womb to tomb. And so... Um, Life is a very valuable thing, but it's not the highest ethic as, as Christians. Because Jesus, listen to what Jesus said about life. He said, uh, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. One of the things, well, at the very center of our faith is a cross. And that was, that's a symbol of Jesus laying down his life. Just recently, we, as a nation, celebrated Memorial Day when we remember those who, um, in service to their country, died for their country because we, we honor that. They, what? They love their country more than their life. Every time a police officer puts on a uniform and a badge, they put themselves in between us and danger, and so that's laying their life down, potentially. So even life isn't the highest value, though it is certainly a wonderful, beautiful thing. So if it wasn't their rhetoric, if it wasn't their teaching, if it wasn't their political influence, if it wasn't their, their uh, um, resources, what was it? What was it about the early church that brought such cultural change to the world in which they lived? Well, first, I think we have to consider um, the historic posture of the church towards the two key actors in this whole debate about abortion. And that's, um, that's the unborn, and that's the woman. So I want you to consider what the church has believed and what the church has done down through the ages. Considering the unborn, first of all, <clears throat> there has been a consensus through church history about the sanctity of life and life in the womb until about the 1960s. In the 1960s, some theologians, interestingly, on both the far right and the far left, began promoting uh, the, the possibility of, of abortion. But until then, throughout history, you simply don't see any support for it. Now, those theologians who started talking uh, positively about abortion in the 1960s pointed out correctly that the Bible never uses the word abortion. The Bible never speaks about the word abortion, never comes up. And they are absolutely correct. The word does not appear. 
I would say there are other words that are very important to us that may not appear in the Bible too. Trinity is one of them. Uh, the Bible never mentions the word Trinity, yet we would say that the concept of God eternally existing as one God, three persons, is so important, so central to our faith that if you deny that, you cease being an Orthodox Christian, okay? So it's so very important the word isn't mentioned. Uh, and Jesus didn't say anything about it. They would say, yes, he didn't. There are other topics that Jesus did not say anything about. Jesus did not say anything about incest. Would we assume that he would be okay with that? Of course not. We know what Jesus said about the children, and uh, it was always positive. Matthew 19, he said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Uh, and so there was a respect for life and children. Children in the first century were not, we, I, we, we um, you know, kind of idealize children today, and it, that's not a bad thing. Uh, I love FaceTime with my grandkids. I love getting the pictures. I love seeing the silly videos, and I love all of that. But in the first century, kids were kind of, they were, they were supposed to be seen and not heard. They were, they were um, considered um, uh, people of less worth. But then along comes the teachings of Jesus and children, and the respect for children gets elevated simply because of his teaching. Also, the scriptures throughout talk about the, the marvels of God's creation that begins in the womb. Listen to, we quoted from Psalm 139 as our call to worship today. And it's one of my favorite psalms. And in the middle of that psalm, David says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Isn't that cool? Before you were born, God knew every day that you would live, and he ordained those days. He, he set those days in place. He tells Jeremiah, I knew you before you were born. He knew him in the womb. And, and we see this continuity is another concept throughout Scripture, that, that there's a continuity between the person in the womb and the person that's born. Of course, the Gospel of Luke, which we read from earlier, has this, begins with this beautiful, two beautiful stories about uh, moms giving birth. First, there's Elizabeth, and then, of course, there's the story about Mary and the birth of Jesus. Um, but we're introduced to Zechariah and, and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest, and they... Uh, were married and uh, were older and had ne never had children, which in the first century was uh, a, a kind of a, a thing of social disgrace. And she lived with that. And one day the angel visits her and says she's going to conceive and she's going to have a very special child. And um, in, the, in that word that the angel shares with Elizabeth, it says here, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. God is going to fill this baby in the womb with God's Spirit, and God's Spirit comes to dwell within human hearts. In verse 39, after then the angel Gabriel goes to Nazareth and speaks to a teenage girl named Mary, that she also is going to conceive, but in a very unique way. And what, she had, what will be growing in her is the Son of God. And so when Elizabeth was in her sixth month, Mary just gets this word, and she goes to visit Elizabeth. 
And it's one of the sweetest encounters in all of the Gospels. In verse 39, it says, At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as, my, as, as, soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. You see, in that passage, I want you to notice some things. First, these children in the womb are, are named, they're known, and they're even communicating. Uh, John was going to be the forerunner. John the Baptist was going to go forward, and he was going to say, prepare the way for the Lord. His ministry is preaching. We're going to prepare people's hearts to receive the ministry and teaching of Jesus. And, and uh, Bible commentators point out that his job as a forerunner begins while he's yet in the womb, just six months gestation. He's leaping for joy because he's in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus has only been conceived maybe days or weeks before this. Theologians down through the centuries say that the incarnation, the incarnation is a fancy word that simply means taking on flesh, God becoming one of us, began at the moment of conception when God, think of this, God allowed himself to be reduced to a single cell, implanted, and uh, in utero, nine months, just like us, experienced life just like us. The incarnation begins there. And so... Um, while the New Testament doesn't say anything about abortion, the early church, as it begins to spread throughout the Roman Empire, and it encounters this culture, this widespread culture of, of abortion and exposure, they begin to speak out. They begin to address it. We see it in one of the earliest, most respected documents from the day. Uh, it was called the Didache. The Didache just simply means teaching, and um, it was written as early as 50 A.D., maybe as late as 120 A.D., we don't know. Um, I'm not even sure who exactly wrote it, but it gives us a beautiful picture into the early church. It allows us to see some of the practices. You can go online and read it. It's relatively short. Uh, but the Didache was a highly respected document within the early church, and it simply says there, do not murder a child by abortion nor kill it at birth as the church encounters the Roman practices. Other writings, consider, like the Epistle of Barnabas says, you shall not slay a child by abortion. Second century uh, document, the Epistle of Methodus to Diognetus, um, describes the surprising behaviors that cr set Christians apart from the pagan world. Uh, it's a, listen to this, it says this describing Christians. They beget children but do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table but not a common bed. So different and so radical was the early church teaching that it got the attention of the pagan world. Uh, Justin Martyr, an early church father, said, We have been taught that it is wicked to expose even newly born children for we would then be murderers. And I could go on and on quoting other church fathers, but there was a unanimity, uh, just a consensus across the early church as it confronted the culture of its day. And again, that consensus maintained up until about the 1960s when it began to change. Um, well, that's the unborn. What about women? 
As you've heard me say on a number of occasions, as recently as Easter, Christianity and Jesus were radically pro-woman, radically so. Jesus, as a rabbi, had female followers in his midst, a source of scandal and unheard of for his day. He honored women. When a woman was brought to him who was caught in the very act of adultery, instead of stoning her as the crowd demanded, he let her go. And he says, leave your way of sin. And, and uh, he says, I don't condemn you. And uh, leave your way of sin. And he lets her go. Because the law also required that the man be there. They didn't bring the man. And Jesus showed grace to women. When he was resurrected, he appeared first to women. Jesus dignified women every chance that he had. Uh, the early church did as well. In fact, the, the church became this place um, where women were honored. They were not so much honored in the Roman Empire. They were just property. Rodney Stark, who is a, uh, um, a church historian, a historian, says, the Christian woman, this is talking about the first century church, the Christian woman enjoyed far greater marital security and equality than did her pagan neighbor. Christianity was unusually appealing because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than did women in the Greco-Roman world at large. And it was it any wonder that women and men flocked into the church because of its teaching. Now, as you look down um, through history, as you look through um, uh, the ages, sometimes we haven't had the best track record in the church of treating women. And um, that's unfortunate and then there are times when the light shines. Um, when the whole abortion debate began, uh, some on the pro-choice side began saying, well, you, you only care about the baby in the womb. You don't care about the woman. And maybe early in um, following the Roe versus Wade decision, there wasn't many opportunities for ministry to women. And maybe there was something we needed to hear there. Um, I, like many of you, have been embarrassed sometimes by the way that women um, who have chosen abortion have been shouted down and ridiculed and condemned. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Um, because the reality is many women feel they have no choice. Ironic, isn't it? They feel that they have no choice. They feel caught. They feel trapped. They feel like they don't really have an option. Frederica Matthews Green um, lived much of her early adult life as um, a non-Christian and uh, pro-choice. And then she met Jesus and uh, changed her position on abortion. She founded an organization called Feminists for Life. And she said, a, a woman generally chooses abortion the way that an animal caught in a trap chooses to chew its leg off to get set free. Doesn't want that. And so empathy and understanding and trying to meet women where they're at is part of the need. But at its heart, Christianity is radically and convincingly pro-woman. So that's the, uh, just a very quick overview. But what was it about the early church? What was it that won the day? What was it that changed hearts? Well, that's what it was. They won hearts by their deeds. Jesus said wisdom is proved right by her actions. And you know what they did? They went to those places where babies were exposed. And they picked them up, 
and they took them home and they adopted them by the thousands. Um, unusual love, radical love that began to get the attention of the community around it. Going back to Andy Stanley again in his book, Irresistible, he says, rescuing abandoned babies isn't commanded or even commended in the New Testament. Food was scarce and expensive. Homes were small. Babies died all the time. Why would anyone put their own family in jeopardy on behalf of an abandoned child? Christian scripture didn't require it. Jewish scriptures didn't require it. But the early church believed that love required it. Love required it. Now, I said that life is a beautiful gift. It's, it's a wonderful thing, but it's not the ultimate value. We're told in Scripture what the ultimate thing is. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So motivated by love and the teachings of Jesus, the early church went into action and by their deeds began to change the world. Um, they asked the question, who's my neighbor? Because Jesus often talked about the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God. Actually, it's one commandment with two parts, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. When the story is told in Luke's gospel, it's um, a guy coming to Jesus and saying, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, he says, well, what do you, what do you think? puts it back on him, and he quotes those two commandments. And Jesus says, you, you've, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. But says, but the guy wanted to justify himself, and he said, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Who am I really supposed to love? Not those Samaritans. <laughs> and so Jesus tells a story in which he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story crazy and he's basically by telling this story pushes the point home who is my neighbor you know it gets to the end of the story and and it's about a man who gets accosted by robbers on the road to Jericho and he's beaten and he's left half dead and stripped robbed religious people come by two of them two religious leaders we professional Christians don't always fare well in the New Testament and they walk by on the other side and the Samaritan. Samaritans hated Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. They had great historical reasons for that. <laughs> Not excuses, but history. Sees the man, stops, and helps him. Bandages his wounds, gives him medical care, takes him to an inn where he gets a comfortable bed, leaves some money, says, I'll come back, and if you spend any more money, I'll pay you back. And so he tells the story, and Jesus ends it with a question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of law said, the one who had mercy on him. Couldn't say the Samaritan. Just couldn't pull himself to say it. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Hmm. Who's my neighbor? It's anyone who crosses my path. And the early church said, those babies left out there to die 
they're my neighbor. And they ask the question, the question that should be on the lips of every Christian when it comes to this subject or any other subject like this when it involves human beings, what does love require? Those babies, abandoned, they're my neighbor. What does love require? They scooped them up and they took them home. And they did this year after year, year after year, and 300 years later, the message, like yeast in, lev- in, in bread, just worked its way through and changed the culture. They won hearts. Um, Jesus said, this is my command, that you love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He said, a new commandment I give you. This is the new way of Jesus. And this new way was the way that transformed the world, lived out through the lives of the early church. They asked, who's my neighbor? And what does love require? So I ask us today, here, now, what does love require of us? I think it means to be first, I want to give you four answers to that question, all right? I think it first means to be a people of grace. For by grace are we saved through faith. Every one of us stands in need of the grace of God. None of us can stand otherwise. Every one of us is a sinner in need of grace. And that's what is offered to us. Uh, John Piper said, the gospel teaches us how to live, but it also rescues us when we fail to live the way we are supposed to live. We need to be a place of grace. And that that means showing grace to all, um, including those who have gone the path of, of abortion and being a place of grace for them. Some of you are familiar with uh, Christian hip-hop artist, Grammy Award-winning artist Lecrae Moore. He just simply goes by Lecrae. Um, he admitted his, the role he played years ago in persuading his girlfriend to abort their child in 2002. At the time, he had become a Christian, but he was still kind of living on the wild side of things. As he dropped his girlfriend off at the abortion clinic, he knew His action was, in his own words, an expression of, quote, me choosing my life over yours. He wrote a song, Good, Bad, Ugly. And in that song, he said, I was too selfish with my time, scared my dreams were not going to survive, so dropped her off at that clinic that day a part of us died. Lecrae didn't confront his sense of guilt and shame until years later when he got ready to marry the woman who is now his wife. He said, I literally broke down over the guilt and the remorse and the shame of it all. He said that was the beginning of the healing process for me. Being a place of grace means that we're there to show people who have chosen and chosen badly, which includes all of us, grace. I think the precipitating thing that um, made me decide to go down this road today was a visit I got from a woman in our church, someone I've known for a long time. In fact, she's been part of our church going all the way back to the theater days. Um, 
Beth Shepherd serves in our um, Alpha ministry, along with my wife, as one of the folks who prepares the meals. And one night at Alpha, she told me, Ron, I, I'd like to come and talk to you about something. I said, okay, fine. I um, didn't know what that was going to be about. She showed up. And there in my office, she confessed to me something she had only told one other person in her life, her friend of hers at lunch a week before. That at age 16, she had an abortion. Lived in a small town in southeast Missouri, went to a conservative Christian church. Didn't feel that she could be a teenage mom, the shame would be way too much, and didn't feel she, her parents didn't feel that she could carry the baby. So her parents made her have the abortion. And because she felt the church in which she participated and just the whole culture was going to be condemning and judgmental, they never talked about it again. Never. Until many years later, when she told her friend and then told me. Um, and I'm so grateful God gave me grace that day to show grace to her. We need to be a place of grace for the broken and the hurting. What often is talked about in the abortion debate, when it's talked about women, it's usually before. What Israeli gets mentioned is the need after the guilt and the shame become so intense. Well, we have the answer for that. We peddle hope. We peddle grace. We peddle forgiveness because that's what we're about as the church of Jesus. So what does love require? It requires it will be a place of grace. It also requires that we support women in crisis. Telling them, no, don't get an abortion is not enough. We have to be there in tangible ways. We have to be there ready to help. Just as the early church puts, had skin in the game. They scooped up those babies. And, and you can imagine the, the cost for many of them being, being poor, what that meant for them. They paid the price. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm convicted by that. I'm deeply convicted by that. Because I've never done anything like that. So we have to really, genuinely support women in crisis and be there for them if we expect them to choose life. And I'm so grateful that I see the church acting in this way more than ever. Uh, you may be aware that a new place is coming to Cape Girardeau. The Roman Catholic Church, the Diocese of Springfield, is bringing Lifehouse, a crisis maternity home, here to downtown Cape. And it's patterned after the one that they have in Springfield. This is a letter from them. Our missions council um, gave some money towards the construction of this facility, and it is a wonderful thing that's going to be done here. The Lifehouse in Springfield has saved 109 babies, but what they do is they say to those who are homeless, who have no means, come and live here. And the women can live there throughout the pregnancy and up to a year afterwards in a safe environment. One of the residents of Lifehouse named Natalie said, I'm happy and safe. My child and I are thriving thanks to the warmth and comfort of Lifehouse. I try not to think about life be before Lifehouse. Those thoughts have been replaced with goals and ways I can achieve them. I am blessed beyond measure. This by a woman who had no options yet. She found them there. Speaking of options, there's a organization in town that we have part partnered with for many, many years called Options for Women that meets women who are in desperate situations facing a, an unplanned pregnancy, and they're there for them, and they help them in tangible ways. We get a letter every year from one of the women who's been supported 
Um, and this, this note, handwritten note, says, thank you, um, addressed to LaCroix. Thank you for supporting this organization. They helped me in more ways than I can count. Today, we learned how to save money, which is something I needed. I love the parenting classes because they helped me to be a better godly mother. Um, Options for Women also is offering a, um, um, a class. And the class is simply her choice to heal. It is stepping into that reality, that reality that Beth experienced, the shame, the secret, the caring, the guilt, and, and allows them to process it. Uh, I was actually going to have her uh, share in my message today, but she's like in eight, week eight of this 10-week class. Uh, and she needed to go through that healing process before I put her up in front of people. And, um, but she's going to be in the lobby to talk to you about it. If you want information about that class, um, uh, we can give you information after. What does love require? It means being a place of grace. It means supporting women in crisis. It also means caring for the unborn. The scriptures speak often of the orphan. Uh, usually it's in kind of a, a three things mentioned, saying three people, the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the foreigner in our midst. Hundreds and hundreds of verses in the Bible. And we spent years talking about that. Every November we, we acknowledge Orphan, orphan Sunday and we, we've been holding up adoption. Adoption is a beautiful thing. Many, many people were waiting for babies. And many of you have adopted children. And I know many of you have adopted children with special needs. Uh, there's foster care. There's all kinds of ways that we can come to the aid of the orphan. I saw this, this uh, remarkable uh, ministry out of Korea. In South Korea, children born with deformities are seen as a national shame and a disgrace to families. Uh, so often they're aborted are simply um, uh, killed at birth. So enter Presbyterian pastor Lee Jong-rak, who adopted 10 children, which is the limit that you can adopt in Korea, and has saved over the lives of 600. In a small house in a neighborhood in Seoul, South Korea, he put out a box, um, and on a, there's a hand-scrawled sign outside the box that says, if you can't take care of your disabled babies, don't throw them away or leave them on the street. Bring them here, and children can come. And uh, like I said, over 600 babies have been left there. It all started when he and his wife had a child born with severe disabilities. And he was questioning God and praying. And he was saying, why? Why would you give me a handicapped child? And this was God's answer to him because we want to, I want to use you to help others. That ministry, uh, the baby box, as it's called, has been brought to uh, the United States, now it's in Woodburn, Indiana, at a firehouse there. And uh, the woman leading in, her name is Monica Kelsey. And there, people are able to job children that will be adopted and cared for. She said, I'm honored that Christ has, has me spearheading a program that will save lives of abandoned children because she, as a baby, was abandoned by her mother. God is in the business of redemption. What does love require? I think one other thing. It means having a consistent pro-life ethic from womb to tomb. One of the things I've been grateful for is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Catholics have spoken out throughout the years about this and having a consistent ethic that says we need to care for all life from womb to tomb. Who's my neighbor? It's anyone who crosses my path. And following the Supreme Court decision Friday and all of the heat that's going to generate question for us is, you know, who also our neighbor is? The people who disagree with us. 
How are we going to love them? How are we going to treat them? How, what's our presence and posture going to be like on social media? Are we going to show them the love of Jesus? Is our speech going to be seasoned with salt, as Paul says in Colossians, towards those who are outsiders? What are we going to do with our neighbors? I thank God for the many neighbors I've encountered over the years. I met a very special neighbor uh, when I was, I think it was 18, 17 years old, when I first met Johnny. Uh, Johnny was born in 1961, and um, he is the first cousin to my wife, and I have a picture of him here. Uh, this is Johnny, and that's Nancy, Linda's sister. Uh, they were born in the same year. And uh, first time I met Johnny, I was just taken by his spirit of love and grace. Um, one of the most filled with life people I've ever met in my life. Uh, as a Downs person, he wasn't expected to live very long, but he continued, and he continued to just um, leave a mark on our family. Johnny was loud, and the older he got, the louder he got because he began to lose his hearing. He was um, always joking, always teasing, and always flirting with the girls. Johnny liked the girls. And always filled with love. Never a word from him that was anything that you could construe as harsh or unkind. I think Johnny was maybe, he, was, he also, he loved Jesus. And I think he was the most perfected in love person I've ever met in my life. Johnny died a couple years ago and a light was extinguished from our, from our family when he died. Um, we don't have many. Johnny's around today because um, often Down's children are not allowed to live. And I never want to underestimate the grief and the loss of dreams that a couple expecting a baby have when they discover that their child has uh, severe handicaps, nor the challenge and the difficulty that will follow them. But I believe that our world is not as rich as it once was because Johnny and people like him are so filled with God's grace. He too is my neighbor. So the question is what does love require in every interaction, in everyone that you meet? Who's my neighbor? And what does love require? Let's pray. Father, as we walk through these days, may we be the people of God. May we walk in the paths of our forebears in the first century who loved, who put their faith in action. God, make us a people so filled with grace and love that we are first and foremost known by that. First and foremost known by that than anything else. That that becomes the distinguishing mark of your church once again. May we love our neighbors well. Every person we encounter. By the grace of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. 
If you enjoyed today's message, make sure to subscribe to this channel. Feel free to share this with others that God has put on your heart. To learn more about LaCroix Church or to find your next steps, head to lacroixchurch.org. Thanks again for checking us out, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you.